Welcome to the Preservation Technology Podcast, the show that brings you the people and projects that are advancing the future of America's heritage. I'm Kevin Ammons with the National Park Service's National Center for Preservation Technology and Training. In this edition of the podcast, we join NCPTT's Jeff Guin as he speaks with Aaron Lubeck, author of the book Green Restorations. Today they will discuss Lubeck's book and how it connects the sustainability movement with historic preservation. Aaron, welcome to the podcast. Uh, Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Now you write that our buildings define us. What do you mean by that? Well, it's a great question. And I was reading a, a book recently by Paul Goldberger, the New York Times architectural critic called Why Architecture Matters. And it's a great book. And he, he has buried in the book a, a fantastic quote that says, architecture is the ultimate symbol of a culture, even more so than its flag. And we think of, we're really bombarded with the, the primary symbol of American culture is our flag. But when we think about it, our architecture is obviously much deeper and much more and, and is a better articulation of who we are and where we came from and, and where we're going for that matter. And uh, you can look at it in a historical perspective that old houses, which tended to be more individualistic, built by individuals for individuals, people making the decisions on design were closer to the actual house and you know usually the, the owner than they are today, where there's a lot of split incentives and principal agent problems that kind of take that identity out of the architect. And so for better or for worse, our buildings define us. I think that, um, and most of the the attraction to old homes is that they were, most of them were built during a time when American ascendancy and and um, American idealism. And of course, now if we think our buildings define us, we have a lot of tract homes that are large, you know, centrally planned, where the design decisions are out of the end user that are not very customized. And, you know, they, they define us in a negative sense as well. All right. Well, how did you first become involved in sustainability and the green preservation movement? A long evolution. I grew up in a family in St. Louis of uh, early adopters and of recycling. I remember uh, driving pretty far to find the one place to recycle in the in the 70s. And um, it, oddly, I grew up in probably half a dozen or so what we think of as historic houses of just old houses. I knew I loved them and, and could identify with them, though I, I never really knew why. And I'm not sure that I actually heard of historic preservation until I was about 28 years old. <laughs> and it was a movement that that finally articulated the, the value of these old homes and and somewhat why I had identified with them growing up. And But it was also frustrating to see, like, obviously so many people have lived in these old homes and, and relate to them and love them. For someone like me to have not heard about it until I was 28 was almost concerning that there's a, almost a PR failure of the movement to spread and articulate those values and that, that historic preservation is not a household name. It's never on the front pages. I found has had real negative repercussions for the preservation to meet it, its ultimate goals. And often when it's in the news, it's generally a source of conflict or a protest more than just a group trying to be proactive. That is absolutely right. And that's historically a reactionary movement. And that has been, I think, a challenge, at least locally here in Durham, North Carolina, where I live, is that traditionally the the troops get rallied when there's a building to save. But then there's a movement to try to switch the the efforts of, of preservation to be proactive, to label neighborhoods historic so people can use the huge incentives of historic tax credits to spread cultural tourism and heritage and so forth is a much more positive and far-reaching mechanism and vessel for historic preservation to accomplish its goals. But that's been a difficult change because you know, at least four or five decades, this movement has been reactionary. 
Absolutely. Well, let's talk a little bit about sustainability. Um, that's a huge buzz term right now, and it seems that every field of endeavor, historic preservation and otherwise, is adopting sustainable principles. Uh, how does it apply to historic preservation? You do see sustainability in green everywhere, and in some ways we're seeing green fatigue <laughs> because everybody, just everywhere you go, you're, you're kind of blindsided by uh, greenness. There's a confusion where most people, when thinking about your house, associate sustainability with energy efficiency and energy efficiency alone. And if you look at the core root of the word sustainability, it's really more tied to longevity, and energy efficiency is just one of the inputs into that. Longevity and historic preservation are somewhat synonymous with each other, and you look at the four tenants of green building and it's energy efficiency, indoor air quality, longevity, and your environmental footprint. And each of those has huge, just working on an old house, whether you make it really efficient or not, has huge benefits to the sustainable equation. So, I mean, old buildings, they don't require new material loads, so they're more energy efficient. Old buildings were meant to operate without mechanical systems. So, particularly if you have a, a wider comfort zone of temperature, they're more energy efficient to run. Actually, our mid-century homes were, were less energy efficient than our old homes. That's a common misperception. Indoor air quality is usually better in old homes than new because we don't have the synthetics and the glues and the formaldehyde products that you see in the new homes. Homes. Longevity, it speaks for itself. When you're working on a home that's 100 years old, it's already passed the test of longevity. And of course, footprint, when you're working on homes that already have existing infrastructure, that already have their walls framed, that already have plaster and all this embodied energy and intellectual capital and financial capital that went into them to continue to reuse that. I mean, it truly is the ultimate recycling. Ultimately, my clientele, which is overwhelmingly academic, I work real close to Duke University here, and uh, folks were buying up old houses in Durham and were really interested in the sustainability movement and a lot of our conversations start with you know Aaron I've got an old house I want to restore it in a green way what do I do and there's there's so much information um, to take in both on the green building side there's a wealth of information and then you factor in all the complexities of historic preservations and all the opportunities of both movements that it, it does get uh, a bit overwhelming and that's where we saw the need for this book there's just not that much out there. We actually had one client Google the term green restorations and come up with virtually no hits. <laughs> and so I, I realized that there was a void in the marketplace that the book could fill. But th there's all sorts of questions that people ask when they're working on an old house and how do you keep the character while upgrading to, to meet the needs of the next century? What systems are appropriate for an old home? What should I do with my windows? How do I keep the architectural integrity of the streetscape? Should I unwrap the, the vinyl siding and, you know, restore the, the architect, uh, how to insulate an old house? What are the debates you need to address when doing so? Well, excellent. We actually have your book, Green Restoration, in our library at NCPTT. It looks like it's a great primer and coming from a very practical, holistic approach to introducing everyday people who are dealing with historic preservation issues to all the facets that go into maintaining a historic structure and updating it as well. And that really is the intent, is that, that contractors could read it, homeowners can read it. it, it can be read cover to cover or really a reference. If you're just remodeling your kitchen in an old house, you could just read that chapter and so forth. So uh, I'm sure it'll, it'll serve a lot of different needs, but it is meant to kind of paint with a broad brush. You make comparisons between the environmental movement and the historic preservation movement. And in both those situations, you have people who are very passionate about their beliefs, yet the environmental movement seems to have been much more successful in communicating 
what it's trying to accomplish and in mobilizing its audience, uh, working together, collaborating, especially on the web. Why do you think they're successful? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question, um, and there's one of the best articulations of that answer is Stuart Brand wrote a book called Why Buildings Matter, and he has a great chapter on on preservation there and the history of the preservation movement. And he had noted that environmentalism really rose up to be on front pages, and um, that preservation suffered almost from a lack of charismatic leadership. That there was no, it just happened, but there was no big um, event or no big calling or no or no head of the movement. That people could identify with. And this ultimately made preservation sort of the little little brother, little sister of environmentalism. It's never gotten the same traction that it has. Uh, to me, I also think that the business benefit has not been pressed. I, besides Donovan Ripkema, I've not really seen it articulated very well or forcefully or thoroughly. The green benefits of preservation, I think when I started thinking about this book, even two or three years ago, they were still not pressed very much. Um, and now, of course, the preservation month, the was old as the new green. Carl Elefante's work of uh, calling the uh, greenest building is the one that's already built. Historic preservation is the ultimate recycling. Actually, has some 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 more historical roots. But um, and that that the preservation magazine from the National Trust comes out with the green issue now every year. But all of these things are, are you know happen in the last two or three years. So and one of the other things I think that has not helped preservation get a, a larger foothold in America is that. Uh, to me, conservatives are notably lacking from the movement. Um, there's a cultural preservation link and the, the protection of an architecture that represents American ideals of individualism, strength, ingenuity, and pride. And those should all be very attractive to, to, to conservatives. But uh, to me, when I, when I attend preservation events, I find them notably lacking. And, um, and that has, I think, slowed the movement as well. Well, I've been involved in doing work within you know the social web and the heritage preservation field for the past few years, and it was really, I guess, within the last year that uh, we kind of had a breakthrough in that field with folks starting to engage around heritage preservation issues in a big way, uh, it, but it wasn't necessarily the large preservation organizations that were leading the way on that. It was everyday folks and bloggers and folks that were dealing with these issues with their homes. Yeah, this is a movement that's been notoriously IT phobic, and that has not helped uh, either. I think that there's a big switch to a, uh, or a big youth input into historic preservation that we're, we're really recognizing right now. The last five years, I think uh, you go to the state uh, preservation conferences that there's this whole group of folks in their 20s and 30s that are redefining the preservation movement. Um, and I think that's going to be a great thing. But we're seeing uh, blogs, fantastic blogs pop up everywhere that are really digging into detail of uh, an amazing research and on local entities and using the Internet as a medium to articulate preservation in ways that were never possible before. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. And I think that will have um, that will bring a lot more people to the movement as well. And I think um, the movement is wider than we think. There's there's more people out there who just love old houses than identify with historic preservation. I mean, I was one of those growing up. I think that there are a lot of folks out there that, you know, I even talked to somebody last week who said, yeah, I don't know about historic preservation, but I just love old houses, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and I think that there are a lot of people out there like that that just need to kind of hear some more information or be, uh, be talked to about the benefits of some of the policy uh, of historic preservation and some of the the businesses that are out there to to rehab houses and kind of protect our architectural history. 
Well, one of the things that I really like to talk about is the context of a cultural resource, including historic buildings. I, th- I think a building is great on its own. It's nice to look at, um, but it's the story that really attracts folks and makes us care about why this building should still exist. Yep, and I think we're we're on the tip of an iceberg as well with uh, seeing technology and mobile platforms to use. Someone's going to recognize that buildings are the static medium through time. So people come and go, fads come and go, styles come and go, but for the most part, buildings stay and they're there for hundreds of years. And so we can use that to root these stories to tie together how buildings came to be or how communities came to be, how the owner of a tobacco company lived in that house and moved to there and you know that house burned down and they moved to there and had five kids who went on to start this company or you know this person helped them start a business or do a development out on the edge of town and we can start to piece together the story through our buildings. It's the best medium to do that. Well, let's go into some other steps that the average homeowner can take to maintain their homes in a sustainable and green way. You know, every project's different. Um, one, one person may just be painting a room. The other one may be doing a million-dollar gut job. So it really varies. But the one piece of advice I'd give to folks who are starting out is to, to work with professionals or seek out professionals, um, even if you don't end up in a contractual engagement with an architect or a restoration contractor picking their brain as much as you can or seeing their websites or or just meeting people at green building tours or historic preservation tours. Talk to the experts. You'll learn so much. All right. Well, how can folks learn more about you and stay connected to what you're doing, Aaron? Definitely reading the book, I think, is a great start. Going to the the website as well. And I've got a, I'm up to the date with a newcomer to Twitter as well. So you can join my, uh, my feed for up to the minute thoughts uh, as, as they come out as well. Aaron, thanks so much for being on the podcast. Thanks a lot, Jeff. I appreciate it. That was Jeff Guin with author Aaron Lubeck. If you'd like to learn more about Lubeck's book, Green Restorations, visit our podcast show notes at the National Center for Preservation Technology and Training website. That's ncptt.nps.gov. Until next time, goodbye, everybody.